Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalist John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hi, everyone. I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode number 51. Today, habitat. Can you really make a difference? Fewer native plants actually equals fewer backyard birds. But there's hope. Absolutely. Always hope. And we're going to cover some some of that hope today, some research, as well as tips and resources for native plants for your area so you can help find some. Yep, and we have research to back up everything we're saying, right, Brian? That's right. Plus, bringing back the dodo? Hmm. All right. (laughs) Well, stick around for the fun, everybody. All right, Brian, what's happening in your backyard? It's spring is busting out all over. Oh, spring definitely is. I've had uh, some singing birds, some some nesting birds getting ready, at least ready to nest, so... Uh, as well as plants. I mean, so with the birds singing, I'm super stoked that in the last uh, week and a half, all of these dark-eyed juncos that are here for winter, uh, that so many have not left yet, but they're singing. I get to hear them (laughs) singing. I'm like, dude, you're... Musical trill that they have. Yeah, that musical trill they have. And it's like, you're not in your habitat for nesting yet, but the photo period, you know, the day length's kicking in those hormones. I love to hear them sing because we don't get to hear it very often. Uh, I've got a pair of flickers that are coming in. They're coming in together, which is really cool. So I'm I'm trying to spy out where they're going because I think that they're they're nesting nearby, Um, either working on the nest or or something here. But then also plants popping in my yard, the spring ephemerals. I love this. I've got Harbinger of Spring, which is one of the earliest, and they're teeny tiny little green plants with teeny tiny little white flowers. Some people may know it as salt and pepper. Yeah. Name for it. Yep. And I've got cutleaf toothwort that's popped. It's actually already starting. The first blooms are, are about to come open. Uh, and then I have a bunch of uh, bluebells are popping, Virginia bluebells. And then Dutchman's breeches are, they, they usually emerge early in the, the little leaves, but they don't come into flower stalks until generally like a month later in my yard. So they're still growing. So fun yeah. stuff. Yeah, the bluebells. I, I'm just getting bluebell leaves. I don't have the flowering yet. It's we're a little little behind on that. Oh, mine's um, not flowering yet. It's yeah, still growing. Yeah, it's just the leaves. Yeah, popping <laughs> yep. up out of the ground. It's just I don't know what it is. It's just it just renews you when you go out in the woods or look around your yard and you find these things popping up and going into flower. It just I don't care what it. It just brightens your day so much yes. to see that stuff going on. Oh, it does. And, and it just feels like you know. Wait a minute. We were just and and our weather kind of turned. These things bloom when we had a nice little warm spell. Mm-hmm. We were down to twenty degrees last night. So the other amazing thing is most of these plants that are the early spring ephemeral plants, the ones that come up very early, they can tolerate some of this this mm-hmm. cold weather. Not all of them, and depending on how cold it gets, but they're they're fairly cold tolerant. Yeah, and, they're uh, they're pretty hardy. Yeah, yeah, pretty hardy things. Yeah, I definitely have the uh, the juncos. That's that's been a blast. I did have uh, kind of a little flock of white throated sparrows. Uh, I had five or mm-hmm. six of them under my feeders, which you nice. know I usually have one or two during the winter time. But I'm having wood ducks down mm-hmm. on my creek, oh, yeah. which is always just a blast to see. 
uh, great blue herons that we actually have a heron rookery at the other end of the lake. I'm on the east end of the lake and on the west end of the lake, there's a hundred plus nest rookery for great blue herons. So they've come back and I'm seeing them everywhere. And it's fun to watch them carrying sticks back to, you know, you see them flying through the air with a big stick in their bill, yes. you know, and they're all over the place. I actually had a bald eagle do a flyover yesterday. So that's been the cormorants. My cormorants are back that hang out on our lake. And I just actually, I haven't been home a lot because I was down in New Orleans. Uh, my wife and I and some friends of ours decided we were going to go down and do a little birding in the New Orleans area and check out the French Quarter and eat a eat a beignet at Café du Monde and, you know, do all the traditional things. And right. we went to the uh, World War II Museum. But What kind of birding did you do? We did sneak in uh, quite a bit of birding. We spent one whole day birding in the area and there's some really cool spots there's a neat city park, and it's called City Park, and it's huge, mm-hmm. and uh, has some nice natural areas with great trails, and that we were able to bird. That uh, has uh, uh, actually that's the ca- they have a Cafe Du Monde right there in the park. How cool is that? You get nice. up in the morning, shorter lines. You know, yeah, we got up on a Sunday morning, <laughs> went out and birded in the morning, and then ended up with coffee and beignets at Cafe Du Monde. How much better does life get than that? I mean, that's, that's about excellent. as perfect. Yeah, yeah. And hit a couple of national wildlife uh, areas that are uh, along Lake Pontchartrain. And of course, we got to see all the the you know, tricolored herons and the snowy egrets and the great egrets and the the uh, little blue herons and and that type of thing. So had a, had a black belly whistling duck. A little bit of migration going on. We did have mm-hmm. a few warblers. Ruby crowned kinglets were everywhere. The white eyed vireos were everywhere. One uh, blue headed vireo getting out and enjoying birds and nature. From our backyard and beyond. Yeah. Just won't have the beignets. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, before everybody starts clicking off on the podcast, because, gosh, John and Brian are talking about habitat again. Gosh, Mm -hmm. get off it, boys. <laughs> we feel like we can't hit this enough. And actually, one of the very, very cool things is there's some research that was published late last year that looked at what habitat in people's backyards and around people's houses can actually do mm-hmm. in regards to helping wildlife and especially birds. Yeah. And guess what? It absolutely slam dunk validates that, yes, when you think about your habitat around your yard, and you adapt your habitat with plants uh, and water features and various other aspects that are really geared for helping birds, it really does work. So that's pretty darn cool. Oh, yeah. It's really exciting to see solid research that is showing that. And especially if you can plant at least one native plant a year or maybe even one native plant per planting season or growing season, to step back a moment and be like, okay, so, okay, native plants, what's it really doing? And when we talk about the fewer yeah. native plants you have in your yard, the fewer backyard birds you actually have, it really is a, a one-to-one correlation. And, and, you know, that goes back to, hey, what does a native plant do for us versus just any beautiful landscaping flowers we might put in our yard? Yeah, what's all this excitement about natural plants? I got lots of plants. They're fine, right? Maybe the non-native plants that we put in our yard are beautiful. Um, they might provide some nectar for some of our 
nectar feeders, you know, maybe it's pollinators or um, some of our, like hummingbirds or orioles, or maybe they produce some seeds and fruits, but there's a bird food that's still missing on our non-native plants. And that would be all those tiny little larvae. We talk about one of our previous podcasts, John, all those little inchworms and little moth larvae that are native and they're not inundating our yards mm-hmm. being native insects, but all those insects become extremely important, especially in springtime so that you can have a whole lot more birds in your yard because it all comes around to nesting. Yeah. We can, we can, you know, we can supplement a lot of stuff in our backyards and, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, attract a lot of birds, you know, nectar, as you already mentioned with Orioles and hummingbirds, we can draw a lot of cool birds, put out some oranges, you know, that type of thing. Uh, we can put out bird seed and attract our seed-eating mm-hmm. birds. Uh, we can put suet and and, uh, and attract some of the insect-eating birds that you know can shift to suet and get that protein and fat that they would normally get in a in an insect of some type. Uh, but it's really, if you want to see a difference, if you want to really make a difference to the birds, it is those insects, and it's not just the the caterpillars and, and larvae. It's it right. is it is eggs. You know, we get mm-hmm. a lot of birds that that's you know, walk up and down our nut hatches and our creepers who are walking up and down the trees, searching inside the bark crevices. And they're looking for, yeah, larvae, but they're also looking at little insect eggs that have been laid there. Or they're mm-hmm. looking for uh, little pupae, you know, the, the pupal cases of the different insects that might be, you know, transforming from the larval stage into the adult stage and, and uh, going through that change. And they, they encase themselves and hide in a tree crevice or a uh, opening in a tree and the, the insect or the birds are looking for those. So it's just, it's a, it, you hear me use the term biomass quite often, but it's yes. just a huge mass, you know, a living mass of uh, food in the form of insects. And that is the huge thing, especially in the springtime, because so many of those birds use that. They time, they literally mm-hmm. time their nesting when that biomass is at a peak because that's what they use to get those youngsters fed and out of the nest as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually one of the big reasons that a lot of birds migrate, if you will. The the food resources here are so much uh, better and under less competition than they would be if they stayed in the tropics where they overwinter. So right. they come here for that very reason. You know, you're talking about all these vireos and some of these other birds down in Louisiana. And as they're, you know, a lot of them are in Latin America for what would be our winter and they're coming back and there's going to be a whole wave of different bird species coming back this spring and moving through our yards and some into our yards where others will continue to go north to their breeding grounds. But they'll use our yards for stopover to feed on all those different kinds of insects, whether it's the larvae and, or the eggs or the pupal stages and having native plants landscape throughout our yard, birdscaping, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, helps those birds have those stopover points where they can refuel. And you then also get to see them. And even if you don't see them, you know that you you can feel really good about, I am helping yeah. conservation of birds by having yeah. native plants in my yard. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let's, I want to really clarify. I mean, it's, it, when I'm talking about habitat and we're mm-hmm. going to, we're going to dive into a study that looked into all this in just a few seconds. But when we talk about habitat and the things you can do, yes, native plants, but it's not just 
I mean, when you think of native plants, mm-hmm. what are we talking? Well, we're talking trees. We're talking shrubs. We're talking, like you said earlier, nectar, nectar-type plants for hummingbirds and, and seed-bearing plants that work really well for our seed eaters, like our, our uh, finches and that type of thing. It is, it is the diversity of plants that brings in and supplies food for a di- larger diversity of birds in your backyard mm-hmm. than you would have otherwise. So we're looking at that. We're looking at planting habitats at different levels. We want tall trees. We want low shrubs. We want low shrubs to provide cover, places yes. for the birds to hide and be protected from predators, places for them to put their nest in and be safe when they're nesting. We want taller trees that give them places to perch and hunt from. If they're a drop hunter like a bluebird, where they can sit up in a tree and look at the insects on the ground and drop mm-hmm. from that tree down onto the insects. We want water features. You know, we want to provide them with, if you don't have any water in your area, and, and you guys have all heard me talk about it before, I tons of water. <laughs> I got a lake, I got creeks, I got streams. Mm-hmm. I still have a water feature, and it's heavily used by my birds coming to my backyard. So yeah. a water feature is another important thing. So when you think about habitat, it's all these parts and pieces and how you put them together. And Brian, you're exactly right. Just stop starting with one change, one native shrub. I had flame bushes. Flame bushes are a non-native. They actually have a tendency to be invasive and and show up in our natural areas, uh, uninvited, if you will took all those out and put native shrubs in their place. Yeah, what happened when you did that? Well, insects, first of all. <laughs> you know, for, at first, it's kind of un- unnerving because, you know, the other, the, the non-natives, you don't have many insects on them, so you don't get much leaf damage. When you have native things, you mm-hmm. do have insects on them, and you start looking at these things close and going, who's eating on my plant? <laughs> but that's why I put it there, and they still look nice. Mm-hmm. But they just are getting used by the insects more than the non-native things. Native insects that are eating on that, that's part of the natural process. And actually, its that's what we're looking to have happen. And they're not going to kill your plant. They're not going to devour the whole thing. So when we talk about this research uh, that's been done recently, uh, that's kind of the thing to keep in mind when we talk about habitat. It's the different types of shrubs and trees and flowering plants and seed-bearing tr- plants and fruit-bearing trees Uh, water features, that type of thing. Definitely. The title is Residential Yard Management and Landscape. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Spoken like a true scientist. That's only part of it. Let me start over. (laughs) Residential yard management and landscape cover affect urban bird community diversity across the continental USA. Brevity is not the quality of a scientist. (laughs) Nope. <laughs> no, but I, I, I really appreciate with that title, and I think they really get into a lot of it. You know, it's it's about people's yards. That's what it's really all about, and the the landscaping and the management. You know, AKA, what are you planting in your yard, and how that affects the diversity of birds that you get or don't get, and it, it's across the continental U.S., which it definitely that's got to extrapolate to anywhere in North America. Yeah, and actually, that's what the study shows. And if I was going to name the study, I'd name it what we named this podcast, Habitat. Mm-hmm. You can make a difference. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you really can make a difference. Yeah, it's almost like uh, their study was custom made for our podcast, but we already came up with the title before this, we realized or heard about the study. So, yeah, that, that's kind of it's it's pretty neat little serendipitous scenario there. Huge number of people involved. Their city University of New York was involved, uh, University of Massachusetts, John Hopkins University, 
Duke University, Davidson College, University of Minnesota, uh, Arizona State University, uh, let's see, a couple other places, uh, you know, the University of Delaware, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the reason there were so many people involved is they did what they needed to do. They didn't mm-hmm. just take one set of yards in one location and say, hey, look, this really works. They went out and they went to yards across the geographic regions of North America, you know, north, east, southwest, in between, mm-hmm. everywhere else. And they went to different yards. They went to actually four kind of different. They looked at parks in urban areas. They looked at people's backyards that had certification by the National Wildlife Federation. Ah, uh, yes, they looked the certified at, wildlife habitat. Yeah, yeah. They went to yards that basically were you know, kind of like the golf course, manicured, you know, heavily fertilized, heavily maintained mm-hmm. artificial yards. And uh, then they did things that were like on border yards, people who kind of like my house. I really border on a very natural area. And so therefore my habitat's going to be a little different. So they, they kind of weighted all these different four habitats and just looked at the diversity. The main thing they were looking at was diversity of birds, not so much mm-hmm. you know, the quantity, but the diversity of species. How many different species were showing up in these people's backyards? And uh, it, you know, they came up with some really solid evidence that indeed, the more you do your landscape with habitat in mind, uh, using native plants, mm-hmm. it indeed brings more diversity of birds into your backyard. No surprise there for us, right? <laughs> I'm glad science could validate it. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like preaching to the choir here. All right, we're talking yeah, habitat yeah. again. But one of the neat parts, too, is they talk about, even with extrapolation with the study, um, something we talked a little yeah. bit about. It, it's not just the birds that live around your neighborhood year-round. It's also the birds that migrate through or, or migrate. Maybe they come in for the winter. Or maybe they just come in for the summer and how you're helping to affect them in a very positive way as well. Yeah. And I like the fact that they really, they draw the conclusion that again, it's the combined weight, the more yards and the more people that do this, the broader the reach that the impact is going to have on birds and the more help it's going to give these birds. So they, 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 they took it that next step. And it's mm-hmm. not just about your own little backyard, but if more and more people, which they also looked at, if funny enough, they went in and did some Google searches and things like that to see, you know, how many people were looking at information about these types of things and, and how that trend's been. And obviously the trend for people doing natural habitats in their yard and looking for information about how to do habitats in their yard uh, on Google searches has, has continued to grow and grow and grow. And so the more people do this and the more the momentum gets going, it will make a huge difference. So I think uh, Doug Tallamy, we talk about Doug a lot because he's kind of the guru of all this. Mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, a national park in your own backyard. Basically, mm-hmm. the, you know, by, by creating homegrown you know, national parks, homegrown. Thank you. I couldn't think of the homegrown part, the homegrown national park in your own backyard. And the impact, if we all, you know, or even just a, a percentage of us started doing mm-hmm. that. And how many acres is what was 44 million acres of, of turf grass in the United States? Yes. Can you imagine I think if that's you just correct. took? Yeah. 
take 10% of that, 10% of that and change it into natural habitat, what kind of impact that would have across the continent? Be oh, huge. My goodness. And you know, I had people yeah. ask me just recently again, what about where are all the monarchs? Well, if everyone was doing a little bit of some of these native plantings, monarchs, particularly as a host plant, they need milkweed. And milkweed, man, we've been taking that out all over the place, uh, inadvertently or on purpose. Right. But it's just that concept. Yeah, Brian, that's that's kind of the same story that you hear people talking about lightning bugs. You know, where did all the lightning bugs? I don't see lightning bugs like I did when I was a kid. So kind of we have something we can do to help with that too, right? Yeah, this fall after the trees dropped all their leaves, uh, we left one part of our yard in leaf litter. Uh, on purpose to hopefully have more insects this spring. And I was playing around in that leaf litter, moving some logs around uh, late winter, early spring here. And I found just a whole bunch of firefly larvae. And what's actually sometimes known as glowworms. And they're all up underneath the logs and the leaf litter. And it's really, really cool because if you've ever seen a glowworm, their little butts light up, just like the, the adult fireflies. They're, <laughs> they're really, really neat. And I was really excited that we have them. All because we left the habitat uh, that's going to work for them, and that was leaf litter. One person just doing a little bit in their yard, and another person doing a little bit in their yard, another person. So knowing that even just your small efforts contribute to the whole. And again, I go back to you know yeah. Doug Tallamy. He's written a book called Nature's Best Hope. He's written another one called The Nature of Oaks. And he talks about, you know, he bought a, a, a property. He bought land uh, back in 2010. And he's been doing exactly what we're talking about, changing mm -hmm. the habitat, planting trees. It was just basically open field. You know, had built their house on it. And now they're landscaping the whole thing with native plants and, and, and good habitat. And he talks about planting oaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just starting with one tree, oaks. How many insects use oak trees, you know, for food, and therefore how many birds are attracted to the oak trees to eat the insects? Numbers I've seen, you know, like in the East Coast, the oak forest, like over 500 species of caterpillars from you know butterflies and and moths use them, and in the in the entire North American continent. There's over 930 species of caterpillars that feed on oaks that feed our birds. Mind-boggling. Nothing short of amazing. Yeah, he, he was doing a presentation and he had a photo of this little tiny oak that as it came up, it had two little leaves come off of it. And he was super excited because this oak is growing. And then all of a sudden he sees that the, the two leaves one of them is getting devoured. And he's like, what is going on? I just planted these. And then when he looked closer, it was one of the native caterpillars feeding on the leaves. And he's like, wait, this is why I planted this oak. <laughs> <laughs> so, and hopefully any one thing that you do, go check it out, see yeah. what's happening with it. And if you don't see immediate results, that's okay. Because sometimes it takes time for even the insects to find it. Yeah, and that oak will relief. It's it's not. Yes, it's not it will. Kill it will. Them. It'll regenerate and keep growing. Yeah. Which I think again, how simple this can be if you really think about it. He talks about oaks and planting oaks. He's got a whole chapter on how to plant oaks and and other trees. Mm -hmm. And and most of us are doing it wrong in many many ways. 
uh, because the, the, the root-bound specimens were buying bigger trees. They're in a small pot. They're very root-bound. If you don't know what you're doing in planting that tree, that tree is probably going to, the roots are going to strangle themselves, you know, 10, 20 years down the line. You know, his, his recommendation, literally, is go to the park, find an oak <laughs> tree in the fall, collect some acorns, bring them back home, play Blue Jay, stuff them in the ground, and let them come back naturally because they will be actually a much stronger and healthier tree from that type of planting than if you go out and buy, you know, a three-inch caliper, you know, diameter uh, oak tree and try to put it in your backyard because mm-hmm. they have a pretty right. iffy track record in regards to surviving for, you know, very long. I like that, John. Be a J. Go collect some acorns, <laughs> cash them in your yard, watch them grow. It's okay to wait for time and let that happen and let the let the growth occur. And uh, and if if you really want faster results, go buy some shorter native plants that are yeah. going to flower this summer <laughs> and see that beauty um, this season in your own yard. See, you've got options, and that's the beauty of it. John, we get those questions all the time, and it's always, man, where do I go find? Yeah native plants i think that may stop a lot of people you know they mm-hmm. think well i'd like to do this but i have no idea where to get my hands on any of these native plants mm-hmm. john and brian keep talking about what the heck <laughs> yeah go find them just go dig them up <laughs> <laughs> yeah there are a lot of resources out there and uh, and we'll have these on our show notes as well wild birds unlimited is the champion for the certified wildlife habitat program and it's it's a nice roadmap for you to create a good wildlife habitat in your yard with even just the most minimal pieces to as broad as you can get. But did we actually mention, Brian, that this study literally Mm -hmm. calls out the National Wildlife Federation certification program as those are the yards they went and looked at and absolutely validated the whole concept? I I thought that was so cool. Love hearing that. Yeah. Uh, Well, National Wildlife Federation also has a great resource called their Native Plant Finder. Uh, So you can find all sorts of native plants for butterflies and moths and and birds and wildlife. Uh, So a great resource in that. One of our partners, Birds Canada. Birds Canada came up with Gardening for Birds and its resources for anywhere you live in any province in Canada. And this, it's at Birds Canada birdgardens.ca what i really like about it is they have a really simple way of there is a chart that has five or ten plants that are the most common for your habitat your soil type really really neat but it's not just for the provinces in canada any of the northern states that border any canadian province it works for you too so great resource national audubon society has a native plant database and you can go find different kinds of native plants and places to go even potentially go buy them but then there's also a great resource no matter where you live you can punch in the, at the native plant nursery directory yeah yeah punch in your zip code that's yeah that one right there so the other sites will tell you what kinds of na- plants are native for your area the native plant nursery directory will tell you which nurseries or landscape places you can go buy native plants yeah which They're, is really helpful. We're, we're lucky. There's a couple of native plant nurseries, you know, in close proximity to Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, 
nurseries that specialize in native plants and they're mostly commercial and there's so many commercial and that's again this study kind of looked at that in regards to you know a lot of park systems are doing restoration and, and planting a lot of native plants and there's a lot of businesses that that plant native plants around their their landscaping around their campuses and that type of thing so there's a couple of nurseries here in the indiana central indiana area that specialize in that they don't typically sell to you know, just everybody. They mm-hmm. they, they pretty much are a commercial uh, contractor, but I've found that a couple of them here in the central Indiana area have a special day or two. You know, they might be like two Saturdays yes. in May, where they will actually you know let people come into their nursery and buy stock from their nursery directly, which don't you know typically you wouldn't have access to. So mm-hmm. you kind of got to look around, uh, you know, see what's going on in your local area in regards to native nurseries and, and uh, sources for native plants. And uh, I'm sure, yeah. honestly, at this point, it's become, what, five years ago, maybe certainly 10 years ago, to find native plants was a challenge. Big time. Huge challenge. It's not so much anymore. So I'm sure you can find yeah. stuff in your local area. Well, you know, and that reminds me, there are even in Indiana, and there are other states doing this as well, different parks are now selling as a fundraiser native plant weekends where you can pre-order or you can go. They'll have native plants out, and you can buy. And you know these are native plants are going to work in our area. They're going to thrive in our area. If you're a gardener and you understand the zones, planting zones, it's already the right kinds of plants for your zone. Um, We also do have a lot of Wild Birds Unlimited stores that have for many years, and some are starting up doing more of this now as are able to find sourcing for it. Wild Birds Unlimited stores are offering native plants for sale where they're partnering with local nurseries. So check with your local Wild Birds Unlimited as well. Well, to wrap up, you know, Brian, the the bottom line really is exactly what you and I have been talking about for many, 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 many years now. And that is this stuff really does work. And as we've noted, there's now some research that's totally validating the concept and has proven the diversity of birds in a yard that has been you know, adapted to really good habitat is much, much larger than a typical suburban landscaped yard. So uh, it really, really can make a difference. And who knows, with all this great new landscape, maybe we can bring the dodo back. What do you think? Hey, there you go. <laughs> Let's talk bringing back the dodo. <laughs> yeah. You know, we like to we like to find the, the interesting bird-related stories that are in the news and in different publications. And this one came across our desk. Actually, uh, Evan, I think you found our yeah, producer. Yeah, our producer. Evan found mm-hmm. this one. So uh, apparently... They have now completed, they've found enough DNA of dodos. I'm not sure what the source was, but they found enough DNA to do the entire sequence, genetic sequence of the dodo bird. And when you do that, you know, they haven't done it yet, but there is speculation and talk and some people looking at maybe can you clone a dodo bird now could you yeah. you know i think there's a pigeon that's a fairly close relative so mm-hmm. you could use it mm-hmm. as a surrogate parent if you will and, and have and potentially natural if you will natural <laughs> egg laying hatching of a dodo bird yeah yeah how so. wild would that be <laughs> <laughs> they were first yeah. found in the 1500s by sailors yeah. on on an island <laughs> a three-foot bird that... yes <laughs> flightless bird 
<laughs> and apparently it was super tame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which made it very good for resupplying food for ships that went by. Yeah, those That's those hungry sailors disappeared. <laughs> so I don't know, we could get into a long discussion about the the ethics of, of do we bring back extinct birds and, and you know they, that, there was the uh, woolly mammoth I think there was a woolly mammoth mm-hmm. that was found up in Russia or someplace that, that was very very intact and they could sequence the do the genetic sequencing mm-hmm. on that so it's like you could use an elephant as a surrogate to bring back a woolly mammoth and it's like do we want to go there? <laughs> right you know it's that kind of thing that makes me think alright so if we brought yeah, the dodo bird back, or if we brought the woolly mammoth back, where do they live? Is is their habitat still around? We talk about birds, and birds are slaves to habitat in, in essence of they go where their food sources are. They have preferred food sources. So do we still have that for the dodo bird? Yeah, I have no and idea. Who knows? I mean, how yeah. well was it studied when they I were mean, around? <laughs> I haven't done the research, so I, you know, but what did a dodo eat? I have no right? idea what a three-foot-tall, flightless bird did for a living. You know, what did it <laughs> right? eat? I have no idea. Probably a debate that we're going to see more and more about as the years go by, I think. Anyway, we'll leave that up for other people smarter right. and wiser than us to, to <laughs> debate and, and come up with the, the, the path in the future. But uh, we thought it'd be a fun little thing to throw into the show today. Indeed. Well, and I hope everyone enjoyed the show today and that you're going to make a commitment to go plant one more native thing in your yard this season. Because, you know, you really can make a difference and your small contributions help in the larger scheme of things. Please rate and review us. We love seeing what you're enjoying, what you'd like to hear more of. What's next, John? So join us next time when we're going to share a few of the spring secrets, some neat setups you may want to try, and maybe take a little peek at the WBU Bardow Cam. But until then, uh, Brian and I are going to let nature be our guide. And so please take care. And be safe. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered.